So let's turn to Genesis and uh, chapter 32 and to the passage that we uh, read earlier. Um, if my um, voice <coughs> sounds a little rough, um, uh, I, I, um, I have to confess my, uh, my uh, over-exuberance uh, in uh, screaming my head off when the goals went in. And it's... Um, and this left me slightly damaged this evening. I'm sorry about that, but it, it was in a good cause. So uh, uh, let's turn to, to this passage. And um, one, of the, one of the great um, high points of the Old Testament, um, a, a, a story that changed Jacob's life uh, completely. Um, it's, it was the, the occasion when he became one of the spiritual giants of the Old Testament. This was a defining night in his life. Now, we, <clears throat> we find uh, uh, Jacob um, in, a, in, a, in a bit of a state of, um, of concern in Gen Genesis uh, chapter 32. Uh, in verse 7, if you've got your Bibles open, you would read that he was greatly distressed and afraid. Um, troubles upon troubles seem to be piling up into his, in his life because in chapter 31, he's just uh, left um, home in, in Haran and, uh, and Laban, his uh, uncle, has uh, uh, sort of um, uh, pursued him and it looks like all oh, this could get pretty messy at one point but God actually speaks to Laban and protects uh, 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 Jacob and now, having gone through that would-be crisis, um, now he's going to face uh, his brother Esau. It's uh, probably over 20 years since he's seen his brother. The last words his brother said is, next time I see you, I will kill you. So that you can understand why he's a little bit worried here in Genesis chapter 32. But God has told him go, to go back to his own family and to his own country. God has said that he will watch over him and be with him, that he will bring him safely uh, back home uh, and um, and he has those great promises ringing in his ears. What he doesn't know is how God is going to deal with the problem of Esau the next day. It's one thing for Jacob to be wonderfully preserved, but what about his his uh, his wives and his uh, children? He particularly mentions them in his prayer in Genesis chapter uh, thirty two. Um, uh, is there going to be um, uh, some sort of judgment of God upon Esau? Or is Esau and his 400 men going to be wiped out? Is this going to be a really horrible, messy day? Or will it be, as in fact it turned out, uh, a, part, uh, a, a, a greeting of brothers and a reconciliation and a making of peace uh, together? Uh, God has already um, helped Jacob by sending... Uh, a company of angels in the first two verses of this chapter as well. So let's look at this passage. I want, to, um, I want to ask it four questions and then I want to see four lessons that we can learn from uh, this passage. First, who is Jacob wrestling? Now in uh, verse 24 you will see that a man wrestled with him. In verse 28, you will see that, uh, that he, he wrestled with God. You have striven with God and men. And in verse 30, he's seen 
the face uh, of, uh, of God, and yet his life has been spared. And yet Hosea, in chapter 12, when he uh, has his commentary on this story, uh, he says, um, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favour. So, who is Jacob wrestling? Is it a man? Is it God? Or is it an angel? And the answer to that question is yes. I don't know whether you were expecting that answer. Um, a very dear friend of mine who died far too, too young, Victor Bajan, we had a fraternal uh, in, for many years in his home in uh, Milnrow. I remember once him saying that when you come across the angel of the Lord uh, in the Old Testament, he thinks, and I think too, it is often a, 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 a pre-incarnation appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that is the person whom Jacob is wrestling with. The second person of the Trinity, that's why he's God, he appears as man because it's one of his many pre-incarnate appearances and he is also uh, the angel uh, of the Lord. It's interesting in two very familiar stories to you <coughs> that the angel of the Lord often um, defines himself or, or describes himself as being God. You know the, the well-known story of uh, uh, Abraham's... Uh, um, sacrificing of Isaac before God uh, intervened and uh, God intervened because the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven but the angel of the Lord says that I know you fear God and you have not withheld your only son from me so the angel of the Lord is immediately identifying himself with with God and then when he speaks a second time uh, and uh, he says this so the angel of the Lord called by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. So the angel of the Lord is speaking in the first person as if God is speaking. Why? Because the angel of the Lord is God. Or that other great story in the Old Testament, um, Moses and the burning bush, again, all, all good stuff from Sunday school days, this, isn't it? Um, the angel of the Lord appeared in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. So he sometimes appears as a man, but sometimes he appears as a flame. Sometimes uh, he appears as a rock. You remember um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the, 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 they drank from the same spiritual drink and, uh, and, they, uh, and the rock that followed them was, was, was Christ or the... Um, the pillar of cloud, perhaps, and, uh, and the pillar of fire um, may well have been the angel of the Lord that were leading the people. The angel led the people, we're told, uh, in, the, uh, in the Exodus. But here in the, the flame of fire, when Moses turns aside to see this sight, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. So the angel of the Lord is in the bush, and God calls to him out of the bush, so the angel of the Lord is again identifying himself as none other uh, than, than God. Now, Jesus did not become a man until he was born in Bethlehem. And that's when he took human nature to himself and retains that human nature uh, forever. 
the, uh, the two Nathas in, in one person. But he often appears in the Old Testament as a uh, man. And um, it seems to me that the only face that God has, when Jacob said, I've seen the face of God and yet I've lived, the only face of, of God that there is that we shall ever see is the human face of the Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, um, uh, in Exodus 33, we read, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, describing the glory of God, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Why cannot we see the face of God? Because he hasn't got a face. God is spirit. The Holy Spirit is spirit. And when that we see the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes again uh, in glory to bring in the new heaven and the new earth, we will see God incarnate in human flesh for all uh, eternity. Um, Rabbi Duncan um, Scotsman, he wasn't Jewish, by the way, it sounds like he should be, shouldn't it? But uh, apparently he was great at Hebrew, that's why they gave him the nickname uh, Rabbi or Rabbi Duncan. He says, the dust of the earth now sits on the throne of heaven. So I believe that the person that Jacob wrestled with, with was none other than the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus as a man, of which there are many such occasions in the Old Testament. Secondly, why is he wrestling? Well, it's clear from this chapter that he is fearful about his wives, his flocks, his herds, and even though angels are there to protect him, um, he, he wants something else. Um, and we were told, aren't we, by Hosea, that um, he's, he's in a desperate state uh, as he crosses the book of Jabbok and goes back and he's alone. He, he wept and sought uh, God's favour. And um, he's pleading with God. I think what's probably happening here is this. He wants to be alone. He wants, he wants to pray and plead and seek with God and tears flow from his face because of the immensity of, of the need he feels. And then in the darkness of the night, and it's interesting that, that the, the whole matter of night and daybreak seems important in this story. So in, in the darkness, in the gloom, um, this figure appears and comes nearer to him. And uh, he sees this person as the answer to his prayers. He doesn't think it's just an angel that has come from the camp uh, which they have set up near his camp. No, this is a man that's coming, but he's more than a man. Uh, this is the same God that has been speaking to him before. This is the same God who he has seen uh, uh, when he saw the ladder uh, at Bethel. And he lays hold of this person and he will not let him go until he receives a, a, a blessing from him. 
when it says wrestled, um, don't, don't think of this as two falls or a submission to, to, to bring about the win or anything like this. This is really grappling, is it holding on? It would appear that uh, the angel of the Lord is trying to pull himself away and Jacob is hanging on and will not let him go until he gets that, uh, that word of blessing. He has this insatiable desire to be with this person and to hear another word of encouragement and blessing from him. But thirdly, why, why is his name changed? Well, the name Jacob, um, it has all sorts of not very good, uh, nice meanings to it. Um, some suggest it means grabber of the hill because he did that when he was born and uh, uh, when uh, Esau was born first, it was like holding on to the hill. Sometimes uh, uh, they, people suggest it means a supplanter. He's trying to supplant e Esau. Uh, sometimes they suggest it's deceiver. So not very, not, none of the, the meanings uh, are very encouraging. Where's Israel? That can mean a prince with God, one who uh, fights with God and prevails, a prevailer, one who fights victoriously with God. So here is this new name for a new Jacob in this night when he had this amazing experience of God that will transform his life forever. But that name, of course, continues to this day uh, in the nation that has uh, flown uh, from his uh, his family. Finally, why, why was he wounded? I mean, it seems quite cruel, isn't it? I mean, that God actually leaves somebody permanently maimed, maimed and probably in pain for the rest of their lives. Why, why would God inflict this, this injury on him? Well, I think it's a, a permanent reminder of this life-changing encounter with the living God. Now it is when we get a bit older, um, you know, uh, our mind can play some funny tricks on this, can't it? And perhaps as he gets older, he might think back, did that really happen? Was, did I really wrestle with God on, on that night? Or was it like uh, the dream I had at Bethel? Was, it, was I just dreaming about this? Well, of course, the permanent injury the permanent limp, the, the pain when he walked, um, will be a permanent reminder that this really, really did happen. He really did hold on to the living God and received a blessing from him. I, I, it's great with this story that um, uh, there's a, a couple of things that just show how authentic the Bible is. Uh, certainly in my version, the ESV, there's two spellings of the word peniel, one with an I and one peniel with a U, and they're within a verse of each other. So Moses has done this deliberately. So the name that, uh, that, that Jacob gave is spelt with an I, and it means all seeing God face to face. But 500 years later, when Moses is writing this story in the book of Genesis, that place has changed to Penuel now. That's what it was called. Isn't it strange? Isn't it? Well, it's wonderful, rather, that, that these little subtle things come out in the story. And then he puts in that little note at the end of the chapter saying, this is why... 500 years later, people are still not eating that part of the animal, that muscle by the hip, because that was the one that was put 
out of joint by the angel of the Lord in Genesis 32. Now, what four lessons can we learn from this story? And the first is this. I think we learn that we, uh, we, 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 when we are weak, we are strong. Strength through weakness. He learned about his weakness. And you think, well, why do I say that when his name is being changed to somebody who, who prevailed with God, somebody who fought victoriously with God? It seems that, uh, that, that, that it's all about the strength of Jacob to be able to hang on to, 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 to God for all these hours of, uh, of darkness. But of course, when you look at the story carefully, you will see it only took a touch probably of one finger of the angel of the Lord to put the hip out of joint. He didn't sort of throw him on his back and start wrenching his leg around. He just touched him. And he could have touched him at any time in that night. In other words, he allowed him to hold on because of what Jacob needed to learn. And what he needed to learn was that we're at our best when we feel we are at our weakest, when we feel a sense of dependence, when we think that we, we, um, we, we can contribute nothing to a particular problem or a situation. He's a real felt sense of need. And he knows he has to depend upon God alone. He just wants to hear that word of promise for him. And he's just really crying to God with tears flowing down his face. Lord, I can't face my brother uh, alone. I, 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 you sent me angels, but I need more than angels. Lord, I need you. I need you to be with me. I need another word of encouragement and blessing from you. He wept and sought his favor. I need you every hour, every hour I need you. It's one of the reasons why, of course, God allows all our trials and difficulties and crises and crosses to come into our lives. It's, uh, uh, it's always because of the lessons that we need to learn. It's never punishment in a sense because all our punishment has, has been um, uh, handled by Jesus on, on the cross. Uh, uh, but there are lessons we need to learn. And some lessons we only learn in times of really deep problems and crisis and needs. And what Jacob learned and what we need to learn in times of crisis is that we uh, are nothing. And without God, we can achieve nothing. And that, uh, that to, like Paul would say, when I am weak, I am strong, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What did Jacob learn? Well, any blessing from God, any sweet spiritual moment spent with God, these are all of grace. They are all gifts. And it's all about him and his grace and his power and his strength and his strength working through our weakness. We learn, as Jacob learns, in times of crisis to be humble and to speak to God in prayer of our utter need of him and dependency upon him. But the second lesson we learn is not only strength through weakness, but the, meet, the, meet, the need to meet God, to have a personal encounter 
with the living God. Now, Jacob's experience is unique. It's never repeated anywhere again uh, in the Old Testament. But knowing God in a personal way uh, is not unique. In fact, it's essential. It's what the Bible is all about, how God can be reconciled to us and we can be right with him. And he does that through a personal encounter with us. And that personal encounter is not like a, a wrestling match with a real person that we see in this story, but it's when God speaks to us and comes to us in his word. And then there is that day, that day that changes our lives, like changed Jacob of old, when a message we have heard so many times before, we now understand it and our eyes are opened and we see something that we have never seen before. And there is given within us a deep sense of need and longing that we want to be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learn, as we've already thought about with the Lord's Supper, that Jesus came for that end. That's why he suffered and died. And that's why he went to the cross. He, he did it so that he could bring us back to God. Our forefather Adam took us into exile, into a world that is dark and alienated from God. But Jesus, the second Adam, he comes to this world to take us back home to our father and to reconcile us to him forever. Perhaps the most common way the Bible describes the relationship that we need to have with the Lord Jesus Christ uh, uh, is marriage. Uh, the Bible begins with that, Genesis 2.24. Um, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, the institution of marriage is actually about Christ and the church, he says. It's about the bridegroom coming for the bride. That's how the Bible begins. And it ends at the end of Revelation with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what is the cross all about? It's about washing his bride clean so that she can be a worthy partner uh, in this spiritual marriage with him, this eternal relationship. He's made us fit to be his wife. And, um, and we need that sort of personal encounter uh, with God. Um, it's not just knowing about God, it's knowing God, knowing the reality of God in our lives, knowing that we are saved because Jesus Christ really has done everything required to bring us back to God. We need a life-changing encounter with the living God. And as Jacob experienced that in that night, we need to experience that. We've never experienced it before in an evening like this where God can come and through his word speak to us and by his grace draw us to himself. So we, we learn strength through weakness. We learn the importance of a personal encounter with God. But thirdly, we learn the importance of being alone with God. Jesus Christ, in the context of the Pharisees who were making a show of all their praying and fasting, said that when you pray, just, just go into a, into a small room, just, just get yourself alone and spend time with God. 
And Jesus himself, uh, like Jacob, he prayed through the night, but he went up a mountain to, to pray to his Father <coughs> in heaven. Now, why, as believing people, do we find the work of prayer and seeking God's face so hard? It really is the most difficult thing we do. It is like being involved in a wrestling match. I remember um, many years ago um, reading these accounts that Martin Lloyd-Jones would come up with um, of these great heroes uh, of the past. I try and rescue my voice a little for a while. And um, he relates these stories of these godly men who would go off into the fields and they would pray for three or four hours and it would be just like two or three minutes. It was such a delight to them. Now, I don't know what your experience is like, but mine is I pray for two or three minutes and it seems like three or four hours. Uh, it's the exact opposite. It's so difficult, so many distractions, so many things that come into our minds when we want to try to, as it were, fellowship with God and commune with God in our praying in, in, a, in a deep way. And God has given us hasn't he, uh, that longing, that deep inner longing for an intimate fellowship and close walk with him. Uh, he's given us deep sense of our spiritual needs. He's given us spiritual longings. He's given us spiritual appetites. We're like the, uh, the, 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 the young deer that is panting for the water courses. So we, we pant for the living God. That's, that's the hallmark of a child of God, that we have this God-given desire just to know more of him, to, to, to commune with him, to fellowship with him. It's the Holy Spirit's great work to stir up these deep longings within us. And yet we find it so hard. It's like wrestling when we come to be alone with God in our prayers. Because... Um, Praying is not just, you know, saying prayers. That's, that's the problem. Praying is engaging with the living God in a, in, a, in a deep and heartfelt, sincere way where we're pouring out our hearts and our souls uh, to, to, to him and spreading before him the, the needs that we have that only we, he can meet. And Jacob, he's spending this this night wrestling and before that he was spending the night praying and, and he was probably praying as he was wrestling and he just would not let him go until he knew that he had a sense of God's blessing. And somehow, brothers and sisters, we've got to find a way in our praying whereby we reach a depths in our communion with God that we feel a rekindling of the warmth of his love in our hearts. We feel a closeness of his touch upon our lives. I think we perhaps ought to pray about our praying. Lord, make us better men and women of prayer. But also, of course, Jacob saw God uh, face to face. That's an interesting expression, isn't it? Um, uh, it has, it seems to me, two, two meanings. It speaks of the closest possible communion with God, but it also speaks of, of revelation. You know, uh, in Numbers, uh, uh, God says, when I speak face to face clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Now, 
that's what's happening here with Jacob, isn't it? He's, he's actually holding on to the form of the Lord. That he, 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 God is speaking plainly to him. And of course, Paul uses that phrase in 1 Corinthians 13, where he's talking about revelation and, and the fact that some aspects of revelation will come to an end, prophecy, tongues, and uh, uh, supernatural knowledge. And it will come to an end when revelation reaches its maturity. That's what the word perfect means. It's, it's coming to maturity, to perfection, to completion, if you like. And in the context of revelation, what is completion? Well, of course, it's the, it's the Bible that we now have, where uh, we're no longer uh, uh, bit, uh, in the world of riddles and bits and pieces and partial bits of revelation. Uh, we're no longer seeing through a glass darkly, says Paul. We're seeing face to face. That's nothing to do with heaven. That's to do with spending so much time with God in his word that it's like him talking to us, like we talk to him in our prayers, but him talking to us face to face, clearly applying his word by his Holy Spirit to our lives. And we do, we have, we do this when we get ourselves away from our mobile phones and the, and the hustle of this world and we find a quiet place where we can unburden our hearts to God and where he can speak to us and refresh us through his word. But finally, the fourth uh, lesson is this, that all our blessings are in Christ. And um, what was the blessing that uh, Jacob received here? Was the very act of wrestling with uh, the angel of the Lord uh, 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 the blessing? And now I know there's words that were uttered as well was it um was it a restatement of the blessings that god had already given to jacob but which was a repeat of the blessing that he gave to abraham that uh, you you will become a great nation you will spread out to the north and south and east and west you will have the land of of canaan and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed was it a repeat of the bethel blessing um and of course the way that Jacob and Isaac and Abraham would be a blessing to the nations, as Paul tells us in Galatians 3 and 4, is because the promised saviour would come from their line. And Paul makes a big thing. It's not seeds meaning many, but one seed, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Jacob becomes a blessing to the nations. It's a Christ-centred promise. Was it that blessing then being re restated? Or was it perhaps like Aaron's blessing that he was to say 500 years later, every morning and evening by the altar of ascension in the tabernacle? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord uh, be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Jacob, you're, you're holding on to me now. But look at my smile. Look at my countenance. Look at the warmth in my face toward you. You are mine. You belong to me. Uh, I'm going to bless you. And every day of your life, I'm going to bless you. And 
those blessings come to all of us for one reason only is because the Lord Jesus Christ has bought these blessings for us by spilling his blood, by shedding his blood on the cross. Well, what a night. What a transformative night for Jacob. A night which meant he could never be the same again. What did he learn? Well, he learned so many things. But he learned that God was with him and God would never leave him or forsake him and that, uh, that uh, he, 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 he didn't just need a, a, an, an army of angels. He needed God to be with him, God to be on his side, God watching over him as God had promised. He also learned that God's plans can never fail. If Jacob and his family had been wiped out by Esau, then the promises of God would fall to the ground because it's through Jacob that the nations would be blessed. And he learned that when God has a plan, that plan always comes to fulfillment. Every purpose of God comes to fulfillment. God is in control. He is the sovereign God. His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And he learnt that all the blessings he would ever receive from God are all undeserved. The sweetest moments of deepest communion and fellowship are all undeserved. They can't be earned. He didn't receive them because of what he was. He received them in spite of what he was. Jacob's God, of course, is, is our God. Jacob's saviour, who we met that night, is our saviour. He laid hold of, of the Lord Jesus Christ on that night. And if you don't know Jesus today, you need, with the arms of faith, to lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to cry to him, Lord, I want to lay hold of you, and I don't want to let go of you until I know that I am saved, that I am blessed, that I am one of your people. But of course, Jesus was also holding on to, to him. It was a sort of your sort of thing, wasn't it? And, and when we become a true Christian, God lays hold of us. We belong to him. And uh, he will never, ever let go. And he will hold on to us for all eternity. The God of Jacob is our God. The saviour that he met is our saviour, whom to know truly is life eternal.